This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. As for who recommended this book, it's been recommended by a plethora of individuals, including Joe DeSena, Tony Robbins, and Peter Diamandis, Diamandis, Brian Callen, Laird Hamilton, Nick Szabo, Bob Metcalf. Lots of people love this book for whatever reason. Lots of reasons, I guess. Uh, Eric, I'll leave it to you to introduce the author. All right. The author is Ayn Rand. She was born Elisa Zinovieneva Rosenbaum. <laughs> Let, let's just in apologize 19... in advance for the Russian here. <laughs> in 1905. Uh, 1917 was when the Ru- Russian Revolution happened, and, and uh, she was born in Russia. And so that didn't go over well. Her father's business was confiscated, and a lot of uh, her philosophy was was because a result of of a lot of what she went through in her life that Uh, early period in particular yeah watching her middle class upper middle class family get pillaged yeah um her main main two books are the fountainhead and atlas shrugged the fountainhead was written in 1943 so right in the midst of of world war ii and atlas shrugged was written in 1957 uh the this book has that we're discussing today has obviously had a, a huge impact on on a lot of people and one per- person in particular wanted to highlight in this intro was that uh, her and alan greenspan were were quite good friends and and used to spend a lot of time together so he of course headed up the the fed for a while and so you can you can see that her influence has has uh has been pretty strong so yeah, many that, would say too strong, but we will yeah. get get to that over the course of uh, this episode. Yeah, well, and and I'm I'm really excited about this episode because I've read this book over ten years ago, and and Jason is is the person who has read the book most recently, as as in uh, the past month, and so he's going to. We're uh, this is one of the episodes where I'm going to be interviewing him, um, but in a with way, knowledge. Yeah, but but uh, but having read it ten years ago, but having read it ten years ago and never really discussing it seriously with anybody, so it was a book that had a, a big influence on me, and I'm sure I'll share why uh, in in different parts of the episode. But um, I also heard a lot of negative things about the book, and and just never really knew how to how to approach it, or or um, I. I guess questioning too why why the the book had an impact such an impact on me um, and if those things were you know if I read it now if I, if if those things would still impact me in the same way so really looking forward to this discussion and and want to start things off uh, by uh, by pushing Jason into the to the interview and his initial reactions by by asking a question this this book is the number two book Atlas Shrugged number two book after the Bible. Of, of of books that that people give as the most influential in their lives 
Yet, if someone, especially in today's political climate, if someone mentions that they <laughs> read Atlas Shrugged and that it had an impact in their lives, especially if they're they're running for office, they just get they get crucified in in the in the press. So, why? <laughs> why why is it why is it uh, such an influential book number 2 you know at, right after the bible and yet if you say that you are influenced by it you can you could get a really negative reaction well, i think there's more to there there there's multiple layers to that having read the book having done my share of uh reading about rand and her complicated relationships with lots of different people and and groups uh, I think there's there's different layers to that. One is that the book itself, I mean, one of the chapters of the, of the book is titled The Utopia of Greed, right? So that in itself, especially these days, there is uh, the, the, the general zeitgeist is very much against what you would see, say, in the Gordon Gecko 80s, where you had this idea of greed is good, you know, Greenspan coming out of that as well where you had this idea that greed and the market are good. Uh, and specifically the market, basically the way that the market can actually cater to, um, cater to uh, basically the, the greedy impulses of people and work with the greedy impulses of people. So that in itself, this idea that somehow human selfishness and greed are not something to be resisted, but are something, but are things to be embraced, and that we should design our systems to work with and reinforce the that fundamental, uh, that, that the fundamental greed and the fundamental drive for power and and for wealth and so on that people have, uh, and also the laissez-faire capitalist notions that that she pushes for that. Uh, that is fairly unpopular among a large segment of the population, and particularly so with the demographic of people that wind up primarily working in in uh, large media, which actually then the other side to that, too, is that Rand was generally quite negative about the media, uh, about, say, print media in her day and, and uh, radio and television type stuff. Uh, she had a pretty dim view of that, and, a, and and pretty rough relations with with a lot of a lot of people in in uh, larger media that that she felt didn't understand things and were uh, and and were a big part of the problem. Uh, so that's that's one side of it. Uh, also, the other thing is that that Rand has Rand is is sort of a whipping boy or actually whipping woman uh, for. A lot of intellectuals and, and Rand in this book in particular takes takes uh, particular takes certain intellectual trends and intellectual uh, uh, perspectives and approaches to task because she finds a lot that goes on in high level philosophy and, and analytic philosophy and, and uh, the, the sorts of philosophical approaches that you would see in universities. She finds that a, a lot of that material ludicrous and mercilessly mocks it at different points throughout atlas shrugged and if you are then a part of that intelligentsia of course you're going to regard rand and her uh her perspective as uh something regressive or something to be resisted so then you combine that again with she in her personal life was was uh 
she actually wanted to be taken seriously by that group by pointing out lots of these things, but with by to no to no one's surprise, if you read how she portrays them in this book, she never was really given the time of day on that, and as a result, lashed out even more. So again, you get a lot of that that second that second level that back back end of things in terms of her personal life. So I think that's a lot of it. Uh, I think well, the and, and a, a, a third group is the the government, right? Well, didn't have a whole lot. Uh, a lot of good things to say about yeah she's she general. is to to a large degree the uh, a libertarian's libertarian i mean she's uh borderline uh uh anarcho capitalist i mean she's almost to that point where government has uh there's very little positive role for government in her philosophy uh and and again if you believe that a just society requires uh governmental intervention and these sorts of things, then Rand is, of course, pretty close to the Antichrist in that regard. So, yeah, it could be very influential on the one, ho- on the one hand, but if you're running for office, and, and that makes sense too, right? If you're running for office, if you're trying to be in the government and your patron saint, if the person that you say influenced you a tremendous amount is someone who effectively would, would say that your job shouldn't exist or at least should have as little power as possible, then a lot of the people who want to, you know, consider your your uh, capacity for that position or your suitability for that position, a lot of people would regard that as 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 a strike against you. So that that makes some sense, though. I, I do think actually having read this book and and looked at some of Rand's uh, other other stuff, I do think that in some ways she has been she has gotten a bit of an unfair rap. Although I think. There are a lot of places where I, I look at it and I say, well, this is kind of half-baked. A lot of places that I don't agree, but I don't think she's been given quite enough thought by a lot of the uh, the intellectual side of, side of things. And it's interesting because some of the uh, some some uh, some philosophers are now actually starting to. It's, I, I guess on, on that side of things in philosophy, it's safe enough to begin to visit uh, Rand and interact with her a little bit. Uh, in those halls, in those discussions, and, and you're getting a bit more of that in the, in the last 10 years or so than you got before that. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, what kind of in influence that has and how much that, that may change things in that regard. Well, and it's, it's, it's something you always wonder about, uh, about these bigger books is how many people have actually read them. <laughs> I um, think a lot of people have actually read this book. Yeah. Particularly in their teens, it's a book yep. that seems uniquely suited for you know the, a, a late teen audience. Say, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, um, what were some of your initial reactions to the? That, that was a good good intro. But what were some of the other key uh, initial reactions that you had? Yeah, you know i I found this book both uh, interesting in in many respects and infuriating at the same time. Uh, so close on so many things in terms of, you know, like you found, I, I found myself at different points going, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, of course. Yes. Good. At the same time going, oh God, no, that's just like exactly the wrong way to take that. So, you know, oh, your critique, what you're pointing out is absolutely right. But your conclusion on where to go with this is just really bad. <laughs> so I found myself doing that at times. And then I also thought that the, that the narrative itself and a lot of the speeches and all that were pretty ham handed and wooden. So it's very clear. She's intending this to be her form of delivering a worldview, a philosophy of life and mm-hmm. how to live. 
and that that is actually the center that's the that's central rather than the plot itself or the story or believable characters actually being central so, All right, so it, it, it almost goes into uh, when we're reading the artist's way by Julia Cameron she talked about if you have if you have a uh, ideas that you want to get across in your book before before the characters then it's you run the risk of, of hitting more on the propaganda side because your characters are, you're trying to fit them in to a particular, uh, particular mindset as opposed to, to letting the the characters kind of naturally become right. This is not an organic book in that regard. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that's a really good comparison, a really good point to bring out. And that being a, a book we've also discussed on this, uh, on this podcast, um, that, but I think, it's pretty obvious in different places that she basically had sort of platonic ideals, even though she would have resisted any notion of Platonism. Uh, but she had characters that were ideal types that she wanted to to get across to make a specific point. And then those characters are that and nothing else. Mm-hmm. There, there aren't really round characters all that much in this book. And, you know, they, they, there's a lot of flat characters who just sort of speak according to type to the point where it, at different points, it's like, man, you know, people, no one is exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Like those are not believable motivations though. That's not exact. The, the subtlety is just not there. Now at the same time, if you're trying to get across particular critiques, that can actually be a pretty efficient way to do so. And, and what she does actually with some of the intellectual characters in particular is she takes intellectual arguments to the furthest extreme social constructivism or social constructionism uh, in particular, this idea that uh, uh, what we say and how we say things actually shapes the world. And, uh, and that, you know, absolutes are that, that, that reality itself is impacted by how we speak and how we talk and what we do in terms of, of society. She makes a mockery of that by having people basically, well, there are no such thing as absolutes. You know, you've got this this one quote from one professor who says, well, reality is only illusion. How does that woman know that her son is dead? How does she know he even ever ex- he ever even existed? And, you know, you're not going to find very many people committed to uh, relativism to that degree or to social constructivism to, to where you say, well, you know, if we just act as though the child never died, then how could we be sure that the child, you know, we can, act, we can make it as though the child didn't die. So of course that's, that's absurd. And she makes an absurdity of many of the, the opposing positions, but that works if you're, if your goal is really to get, to do use this more in, in the propaganda sense. And I do think that this book in many respects is class is better classified as propaganda uh, as a way for for Rand to deliver her view of the world than it is a story for the sake of story, as it were. And for her, a story for the sake of story is is, is meaningless. You need to have a, a purpose and a reason for something. So in that sense, that's in keeping with her with her uh, with her philosophy in general. So so yeah, I mean I I found it, like I said, both interesting and infuriating. Uh, I, I thought some of the critiques actually, some of the places where she does stretch uh, perspectives to their furthest extremes, I think she does a pretty good job of critiquing a lot of intellectual silliness. And particularly, actually, I mean, she she wants to go after collectivism and Marxism very hard. And of course, Marxism is still 
Marxist thinking is still very beloved in the academy. Uh, in you know, intellectuals still are very, uh, tend to be very attracted to Marx, uh, and she is the the great enemy of of that. She tries to to expose where Marx just doesn't understand how human beings work. He doesn't get motive the motivations of how people work, and that the whole thing is basically a silly project trying to deny how people actually work, and that it'll never actually result in anything other than people robbing other people at the point of a gun, which is where she wants to go with this. And and I, I, I think she's generally right. If you look at how Marxism has been implemented any any place it's actually come into power, any place where people with Marxist ideals and, and that worldview have come into power, she's pretty much right. Uh, now, the, the interesting thing for me is that she paradoxically falls into some of the same traps on the flip side, I think. So, uh, one of the things that actually motivates Marxist thinking so much, and this is often not understood, but Marx is driven by uh, by the notion of alienation from the work of your hands. One of the fundamental problems that Marx is trying to get at is that in a factory, you got to remember, he's Marx is writing in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, where lots of people are working in factories that are owned by capitalist overlords, effectively. And people are working in these factories on an assembly line or whatever. And they're doing, you know, they're working on these pieces. And then those pieces go out and they get sold. And does that person get the profit? Well, no, the capitalist who owns the factory gets the profit and then only a little bit of the re- reward for the work of the worker's hands actually get back to the worker. So the worker feels alienated, which then results in all of these social ills and social problems. And if we can just have it so that a person, each person gets according to need and ever, you know, and this again, she, she mocks every uh, to each according to their, to their need and, uh, to, and, and from each according to their ability. That's Marx is trying to, deal with that problem of of people being disconnected from what they've done or from what they do she does the same thing interestingly she has one of her character uh, characters say uh uh she he says one gallon of this is worth more than a train full back there in hell because this is mine all of it every single drop of it to be spent on nothing but myself mine have them have you let them beat you into forgetting what that word means what it feels like you should give yourself a chance to relearn it and there's this idea that if if people are working and inventing and they're not getting the the they're not getting the reward for that that is going to be a problem and the interesting thing is that's the same intellectual direction, the same intellectual uh, ground that Marx is working from this alienation from the worker's hand, alienation from the pro she, instead of alien it working, uh, it being from the worker's hand for her, it's alienation from the product of the producer, whether it be the intellectual property or whatever else. And she's trying to get back at that. So it's interesting to see that she's working a lot, a lot with the same kinds of ideas, but sort of on the other side of the coin. Uh, now I also right. think so. So yeah. with that, I'm, I'm, I'm not grasping completely her side of it. So her, her side, the, who, who is the producer that's not getting what they deserve then in, 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 so Ayn for, Rand's so for Rand, the, the problem that she's getting across in this book is that anytime you have a society that is influenced by say, uh, Marx, Marxian type thinking or collectivist thinking, if you want to get away from Marx himself, 
this idea that well we should take from the take from various people who have a lot and then redistribute it based on need as soon as you do that the people who are hugely productive who have big ideas and all this if you're taking like for her father you know again this is very formative for her when when stuff gets when when her family loses uh when her father loses his business when that's taken away from him he's alienated from the production that he actually he doesn't get to benefit from the production that he's contributed okay and for her the person who contributes the 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 great benefit to society should benefit more you know should get the benefits from that Mm -hmm. and and again this is central to the same problem that marx is actually trying to address but she's addressing it from the other side uh which is which is interesting i do think also the other the other thing that, that came across there are two other uh sort of initial reactions i had to this book aside from being really really long and you know some chapters like lengthy chapters just being monologues by characters who have who are serving as rand's mouthpiece but um the other one one the second to last thing in terms of my initial reactions uh is that the book actually is it, it i found it very seductive in certain respects and I could see why it would appeal to so many people because, you know, the reader, the reader is invited to understand himself or herself as, as this, as special and intelligent and not to let anybody else take away your, uh, you know, look down upon your desires or your, you know, what you take pride in. It's saying you, you should take pride in the things you're good at. You should you shouldn't feel bad that you're good at something like and, and there's these sections where uh, she basically talks about how and she's got Dagny Taggart, the, 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 the main protagonist here, who she you know, she feels this emotion in school. She, she talks about how um, uh, very early in her life that um there was one emotion for which they had no equivalent and no response. She felt the same emotion in school, but in classes of mathematics, the only lesson she liked, she felt the excitement of solving problems, the insolent delight of taking up a challenge and, and disposing of it without effort, the eagerness to meet another harder test. And all of this, you know, studying mathematics, she felt quite simply and at once how great that men have done this and how wonderful that I'm so good at it. It was the joy of admiration and of one's own ability growing together. Right. And so you, most of us can identify with that, right? That, that you're, that you fall in love with, with the challenge of something. And then you take great joy in actually learning to overcome that challenge and all of that. We get that. That's something we all share. And then at the same point, she says, well, the problem, though, is the next thing. You're unbearably conceited was one of the two sentences she heard throughout her childhood, even though she never spoke of her own ability. The other sentence was, you're selfish. She asked what was meant, but never received an answer. She looked at the adults, wondering how they could imagine that, they, that she would feel guilt from an undefined accusation. And you could see, especially early in the book, but this, this thread runs throughout that there's this idea that she 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 feels herself as a as a remarkably talented and and bright woman that she should be allowed to enjoy her talent and allowed and that she should take pride in what she does well and that 
it's somehow wrong for other people to come in and say, yeah, you, you should be humble. You, you, you shouldn't think that you're good at something. And she's like, well, but if I am good at something, then why shouldn't I think I'm good at it? (laughs) And why shouldn't I take pride in that? And actually she's right. And that, that thread running through the book, that thing of encouraging people to, you know, if you're good at the violin, take joy in being good at the violin. Like you shouldn't be made to feel bad by other people who are like, well, you know, you're just showing off. No, I'm, I'm actually doing what I, what I love. That part is really important to the, to the narrative of the book. And I think it's actually, I think she's fundamentally right in how that works and how a lot of, a lot of culture, a lot of modern culture works in such a way as to basically try to tear people down when they do excel. And so for, especially for people who tend to be achievers, who tend to be bright this is a seductive book because it's one that tells you it's not only okay to be that, but you, you must be that. And that's what makes you special. And then, and then the next question it, is where, where that goes with that. Well, and, right? and it put, and then it puts forth a, an enemy that is trying to take those things away from you. Right. And then you've got, yeah. Right. And, and so you should feel embattled and you should, you should come and claim what's yours. And that's a, that's a very seductive gospel as it were for her. Mm. Uh, and and I, there's a lot for an intelligent, uh, bright person to identify with here. Anybody who is a good student in school knows exactly what this is about. When you're the guy that gets the A or when you're the, the, the girl that's doing well in mathematics, for example, you're going to have the other kids in class that are like, who do you think you are just because you got the A or whatever? You got lots that there's that natural inclination to try to tear down the people at the top. And she's saying, if you are at the top, then revel in being at the top. Take joy in it, mm-hmm. and don't let the don't let the haters bring you down. <laughs> so that that makes this book, I think, really attractive right up front, and makes a lot of what Rand has to say very attractive up front. Um, that that sounds like a lot of rap songs. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, this is to all the haters. <laughs> but um, uh, and and the other the final observation upon reading this book is. I found it to be, by and large, an encomium or a an ode of praise, as it were, to Eros. So, I should be more more um, specific on what I mean by that. But Eros is a Greek word that is generally uh, translated love, and uh, but but Greek has a, has four different words that are often translated as uh, as love. Eros itself is uh, is the one that's associated with um, it's it, I mean this is where we get the erotic. word erotic, yeah. right? It's 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 associated with uh, with pleasure, with uh, with sexuality, um, with uh, with all the sorts of things that, that, that bring about production. That's what a lot of people don't actually know about Eros is Eros is in, in Greek philosophy. And and you see this in Plato's symposium, which actually is a worthwhile book to pair with this one in terms of uh, what, what it does in uh, the symposium is actually a, a bunch of speeches about Eros, but Eros is the impulse, the inclination, the, uh, uh, the 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 drive that that people have as well that brings about production 
and uh and creativity and all these other things. And this is, you know, again, if you're familiar with Freud, Freud borrows this as well with the notion of sublimation, right? You have sexual energy that's pent up and it results in, you know, it gets sublimated and, get, and results in creativity that goes elsewhere in life, that this is the source of all sorts of creativity in life. That's eros, right? Now you have in Greek, three other words that are often also translated as love, so you have storge, which is like, it's basically the fondness of familiarity. You know, you have fam familial love, right? You have, um, uh, parents have a natural empathy and uh, uh, fondness for their children, right? It's just a natural thing. That's storge. Uh, then you have uh, uh, philia. You have philia is, and this is where we get Philadelphia. This is, uh, the friend uh, friendship of it's like sibling or uh, or friendship love so that you have common values, interests, activities and this sort of thing. And that's what holds you together. And then you have uh, agape, which uh, or ag agape, which is um, uh, agape is is <sighs> this. This actually doesn't really show up all that often until the Christian era. Uh Christians specifically uh, use this word to refer to a covenantal love that is that goes beyond and expects more than all of the others. So basically, the idea of agape is that this is um, uh, the desire. This is a commitment to the true good of another, regardless of anything else. So when you're in a relationship with another person, it's a commitment to their true good, regardless of emotion, regardless of anything else. Well, Does it have a, a, like an undeserved component to it as well? Or? It, it can, but it, I mean, the thing is, so does, so, so, so does Storge. Okay. Uh, so can Eros, yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, they, they can, okay. but Agape, it's not so much that it's undeserved. It's that it is, uh, it's that it's, it's covenantal and it's, it's unchanging. So okay. regardless of what happens in terms of circumstances and all this, that commitment stays. Okay. The commitment to the other person's true good stays. But the thing is, if a person cuts themselves off from the relationship, then they actually can place themselves outside of that in some way. But in any case, for Rand, this book is all about how Eros is the only one that matters. And it covers everything, right? right? I mean, it's it's for love of people, love of money, love of work. Right. And again, Eros is the... Is, is the, the 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 god and the the desire and of course eros is personified as a god in in the greek world but eros is also associated with money and with all of these in in the greek world so i mean this is all eros and what she does in this book is she basically says eros is it eros is the first among the gods is the which is what the symposium actually says uh is the first among the gods is the only thing that really matters and it's the only thing that actually has value if you have storge, this empathy, fondness for familiar for, for fa familial members and all this, that really doesn't matter if your family isn't going to do what 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 they what they ought, and you you need to move on and be productive and 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 live, and do as you you know do as your desire leads. Regard don't don't fall prey to storge, and be careful of philia, right? You don't want to you don't want to let your friendships hold you back from your true potential. What matters is Eros. And so you see 
that drives the, the sexual relationships in this in this book that drives the strong obsession with uh, pr- with production and with creativity. See, it's not just trains and automobiles and so on planes, trains and automobiles that she's really interested in here. It's creativity. You see late in the book that she's just as interested in the creation of certain types of art. And she regards herself as the same as of the same sort as the industrialist because she's producing something of the mind just like they are. But it's the industrialist who invents and finds ways to, you know, lay a new railroad or to invent a new metal or whatever that is the highest order of humanity and it is the highest order because it is the outgrowth of eros this drive this internal drive that leads to production and it's the same drive that and she recognizes that it's the same drive that produces sexuality and all these other things so that's one of the things that stood out to me is how much this book was basically an encomium uh a uh a a a hymn of praise or a a a narrative of praise to eros in you know in other in other words so so yeah that's really that that was that was one of my immediate reflections on this that's really interesting I, uh, I remember being in the car with my dad when I was a little kid and and he asked about something I was learning about at school and I said dad it's it's very erotic he said, excuse me? <laughs> I said, it's, it's very erotic. And he said, I, th- I think you mean exotic. And that's what I did mean. Well, for a lot of people, the, you know, they find exotic uh, things erotic. So <laughs> you, may have, you may have been onto something there. Well, let's have that lead us into uh, your favorite uh, <laughs> quotes. Yeah, and I've got a lot uh, that I could list in here for a number of reasons as quotes that stood out to me. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep this, keep this down a little bit because there's just so much in this book that, that we could, we could do several podcasts on this and we may revisit it at some point later to discuss specific, uh, specific things. If, if, if there are questions among the audience, if you want us to, to develop a certain, a specific point that we talk about in this episode, then we'd be happy to revisit some things. But, um, yeah, I'll go ahead and and get a few things uh, in here. Um, one is uh, a quote from one of her intellectual uh, whipping boys in here. You suffer from the popular delusion of believing that things can be understood. You do not grasp the fact that the universe is a solid contradiction. And, you know, that she has a number of characters who basically like some of the existentialists who uh, who were running around uh, like, you know, Sartre and others that were running around uh, contemporary with Rand, they basically result. They, they concluded that the universe was absurd and a contradiction and that you had to create your own meaning for Rand. That was a that was an absurdity that there was for Rand that everything begins with the recognition that there is actually an objective reality out there that will eat you if you don't pay attention to it. That that it's it's to our own peril that we will that we ignore that there's a reality external to us that we don't just create our worlds that we're formed by our worlds that we yeah you know we have a lot to do in terms of shaping our worlds and we 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 do create to a certain extent but there's also reality outside of us and she's really big on that and, and she now, has, so 
is that is that kind of the the fundamental of objectivism then? Yeah, yeah. The fun, the, the, the fundamental principles of objectivism basically work their way out of that. Now, actually, objectivism in that respect is not something is not a new innovation. I mean, what she's really doing is she's building heavily, and actually, she does, you, you can see that in the names of the three different uh, sections of this book, which would be really. This, if this was a trilogy, which it really is, it's a trilogy in one volume. The, the titles of each of the three sections of it are from Aristotle's metaphysics. She's building on the three classic laws of thought that have been basically held by philosophers for you know generations uh, uh, of philosophy. These three classic laws of thought, non-contradiction, uh, non-contradiction, that is non-contradiction which is the idea that you can't have one thing, something be one thing and be its opposite or be something else at the same time, right? The glass is either empty or it's full. You can't be both full and empty at the same time, right? And you know, it can't be full of milk and have no milk in it at the same time, non-contradiction. Then you've got the excluded middle. So you, ha you have the concept of either or there, and then you have the concept of identity, which she calls A, a is A. You know, something is what it is. And so she she develops that. And and she says Aristotle was right. She says these three classic laws of thought cannot be ignored. Those who say that these things don't work. Well, you have to assume these things. These are axioms that you have to assume in order to make arguments anyway. So you're ignoring you're trying to ignore reality in making other philo philosophical arguments and your arguments themselves depend on these things. So you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on in that respect. She's largely right. And she's not on unusual footing here. This is traditional philosophy in that respect. Now she adds her own three axioms to that to say, you know, non, okay, we've got our three classic laws of thought. Those things depend on three axioms themselves. And that is existence, right? The one thing we can be sure of is that we exist. Right. And, and, and she actually kind of takes it the opposite direction of, of Descartes. We can only, you know, we exist. Therefore, we think. <laughs> yeah. Right. She goes the opposite direction. She's like, you know, it's an absurdity to say, well, we can't be sure we exist. Well, then who are you? Like, I don't know if I exist. Well, then who's I that's speaking? She's like, you're, you're making an absurdity of it. So you can only make sense of you, you can only make a statement by assuming existence. So existence, consciousness which is the, for her just the faculty of perceiving that which exists. So you have to recognize that something exists. And once you do, you have identity. You are something separate from what you are recognizing, right? You now are a consciousness and that consciousness is now an identity. So now you have a, as soon as you have a conscious recognition of existence, through that through through consciousness which is that faculty of perception once you have that you have identity and now you now you can start working with the laws of thought so for her i mean that's that's pretty standard and i don't think that's especially i mean it's not earth shattering she's not taking a uh she's not taking a a a, a an unusual philosophical position here and, and not really inventing a whole lot of ground. Now what, uh, or a whole Wait, lot of territory. In, in, uh, say the third one again, after existence and consciousness is identity, identity. Okay. Yeah. Basically, you know, once you have a consciousness, once you consciously recognize that something exists, then 
you are you 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 become that thing like the you, a, a is a right yeah you, you have identity by virtue of consciously recognizing existence now if you then try to deny existence then you are undercutting your own identity and you're pretending that consciousness doesn't exist and the whole thing is a sham mm. that's not uh, to me which that is, which that is aspect, where that first quote comes right that 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 whole aspect of 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 objectivism i don't think is especially controversial and actually again this is part of why this book is so influential is because she does get this across in a pretty accessible way to where it makes sense to to some to someone who doesn't really know a whole lot of philosophy. This is just intuitive. Like, well, yeah, of course, things exist. I recognize that things exist, and if I recognize that things exist, that means that I actually have like an identity. Okay, <laughs> right? I mean that's not that, and, and in that respect, I agree with her. That shouldn't be controversial. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's Aristotle. That goes all the way. That goes a long way back. You know, Plato goes even further in, in, in some of those respects, even though she doesn't like where he goes with some of those things. But um, well, that's, that's cool. I, I had no idea. I mean, you, you see it in the table of contents here, but I had no idea that it was based off Aristotle. Yeah, that's Aristotle's metaphysics. Three principles, the, the, the three um, first things that Aristotle talks about. You have to have uh, axioms or first principles with, uh, in order to reason at all. You have to have certain things that you assume in order for, in order to have reason. And these okay. are, th these are things that he says you have to have, you have to, you have to accept these things. Otherwise you can't reason. Okay. Uh, and, you know, generally speaking, they're, they're called the, the, the three classic laws of thought uh, and some, some add a fourth law or whatever, but, but really the three laws, laws of thought are pretty, pretty, pretty consistent across a, uh, a broad swath of, of uh, philosophy. Now what she does differently and I know we're way out of out of the the quotes part of this, but I mean, we might as well just go this way. What she does differently is she takes she she takes her objectivism in a very different ethical direction than a lot of people would. Uh, it's it's her epistemological foundation is fundamentally Aristotelian. Uh, it's at odds with social constructionism. So she argues that the mind does not create reality. The mind discovers reality. Reality exists. Whether you want it to or not, reality exists and it's independent of you. Reality would exist if you never had, a, if you yourself never existed, there'd still be reality. Now, and social constructivism says, well, he, we'll, we'll get to that. In a, we'll get to that in a second. So for her, okay. the mind doesn't create reality. Instead, the mind is just your means of discovering the reality that exists independent of the mind. Okay. Right. So you just, you, you're, you're learning is discovery. There's something out there and you discover it, you interact with it, and it's independent of you. What social constructionism says, and she's arguing with this and other forms of constructionism, they, uh, th this, and, and it's complicated because social constructionism also generally, most social constructionists actually recognize that there is an objective reality and sort of a concrete, you know, there's atoms kind of thing. But social constructivism generally argues that reality, or at least social reality, is socially mediated. And so reality is therefore subjective and fluid. And you see a lot of this today. For example, this idea that, well, are you a man or a woman? Well, it depends on how we define man and woman, because, you know, those are sort those are the sorts of things that are socially mediated and they're socially negotiated. What it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman those things can and do change in different societies. 
Does it mean, you know, does it mean that you have specific body parts? Well, what if you then have specific body parts that are, that would designate you as female, but then you get a gen, then you get a gene test and you, t- you test out as an XY, but for whatever reason, things did not uh, progress as they, they might have. And there are examples of that. Are you male or are you female? Well, depending on the society, those things get negotiated out. And a lot of, a lot of social constructionism works on those edge cases. But wouldn't, wouldn't uh, objectivism then be more in line with an absolute and, and social constructionism of a, of a relative relativism? That's how Rand really wants you to understand it. It's a little but bit she, more but complicated. She doesn't, but that. she doesn't believe in absolute absolutism right no she does she does believe that there is absolute truth that's what she's actually really pushing for okay is that absolute truth for her is what is actually in danger here that 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 because there's all these subjectivists that are running around that are saying well actually reality you can't actually interact with reality as it is all reality filters through consciousness and is and our and consciousness is social, like because language and other things are social and definitions of words are socially mediated and negotiated and all that. Therefore, we can't actually and, and because of that, we can't actually access anything outside ourselves. Like, I don't actually see this table. I it, it you know, I, I I see it in a metaphorical sense, because what's really happening is the light that refracts off of that table hits my eyes. And what I'm actually seeing is the imprint of that light on my eyes. So I'm actually only seeing what I what's actually in me. What I'm actually getting is is my own perceptions and my own perceptions may or may be distorted or not. Right. So and, and they may be a little different than your perceptions. So whose perceptions are right? Mm hmm. Well, we negotiate that out. And so reality is somewhat malleable for her. That that's the beginning of insanity. Yeah. Okay. She says, listen, there's a table there. <laughs> and if you don't see it, if, if, if the two of you disagree on, on what it looks like, then, well, maybe one of you may be wrong. The other one may be right. Or both of you might be wrong, but there, there is a table there and it, it, you know, so she, she's basically saying things exist and we can access truth about them via our consciousness. It's not a matter of us not being able to access things external to ourselves. Okay. So, you know, she's trying to cut through that. Um, but, you know, she, she does uh, push very hard on that end. And, and in this book, she regards uh, the efforts of the collectivists as tied into this kind of relativist uh, notion of the world, wherein and, and, and the reason she, she argues this and actually she's again, she's not exactly wrong on, on that. Um, and actually, she's completely right in some cases. But basically, she says those people who are collectivists who are saying, well, you know, let's just, you know, work according to need. And, you know, if someone who's a high producer has lots of money, then let's take away, you know, some of those things, take away the money from this person and let's give it to the person who has need and everything's going to be better because that's just the way things are. And she says, well, you're not understanding how reality works. You don't understand that there is a cause and effect, that there are laws of cause and effect in the world and that you're now going to you're going to you're playing with incentives and you're playing with all sorts of other things that are going to cause problems. And the the rebuttal for that among lots of these collectivists is always, well, you know, 
we can if we if we change the way that we think about this and we change the language and we we don't we don't talk about things this way then we can alter the way things work and to rand that's that's ludicrous it's like yeah you can you can call it a different name it still arose you can call it something else but people are still going to be selfish you can try to make people so that they're not selfish but people are selfish and you know this is her her critique of marx and it's something that generally speaking most people the most sane people critique marx in the same way to say marxism works great until you're dealing with real people well and this ties in very well with with a book both you and i just read uh by russ roberts right adam smith and, and he's got th- this quote he said smith is often characterized or charactered as a scottish forerunner of of ayn rand who, in addition to Alice Shrugged, wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Um, and then Russ Roberts has a quote, he says, in in speaking of Adam Smith, he is mostly interested in how people actually behave, not how he'd like them to behave. Right. And Rand and is, ties, is yeah. very much that way. Yeah. Rand is basically like, yeah, you may want people to work this way and you may wish people work this way, but people don't mm-hmm. accept it and work you know, design a system to actually make it work rather than trying to change the way that people work and fa- constantly failing and then leading to the collapse of society. That's basically where she goes. Uh, and in some respects, in many respects, I think she's fundamentally right. And again, for many people who read that, read the book, they're going to see her critiques against say the Leninist version of Marxism that she saw. I mean, it's obvious. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know what? It's going to result in people getting lazy. It's going to result in the people who actually can have the have have managed to to gain the right to run the government, uh, setting up setting cronies up for you know setting their cronies up to 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 benefit uh, other people. I mean, it's the animal farm critique, right? Mm-hmm. It's what Orwell does in Animal Farm. Like, well, it starts out that you know they overthrow the capitalist overlords, and before too long, the pigs are operating exactly like the humans had been before because you know. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And for Rand, that's an inevitability. But the, you know, for her, at least if you start from the idea that the people who deserve, who who actually produce the most for society, deserve to be the wealthiest. If you operate from that idea, at least you're getting the people who are on top as the people who should be on top, as opposed to if you operate by the idea by these collectivist ideas, you get bad people on top and then they just kill off all the good people and then you're even worse off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's her critique and, and and that's not exactly wrong, you know, that she's right about a lot of this. The problem, the problems come in when she starts pushing a little bit further in terms of ethics. Uh, when, and actually she actually, the funny thing is as much as she disagrees with Nietzsche and with the, with Nietzsche and epistemology and with, uh, Nietzsche's under underlying philosophy in many respects, her ethics end up looking very Nietzschean, especially. Um, and we'll, we'll link to this. Um, it looks very similar to a lot of what Nietzsche says in the genealogy of morality. So for Nietzsche, he, he tries to trace where modern notions of morality come from. And he actually blames uh, Christianity uh, for, uh, as the Jewish Trojan horse uh, basically, the, the 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 weak Jews found a way to uh, infect the rest of the world with 
uh, a, t- a toxin with a with a pathogen that would uh, subject the rest of the world to their to things that would advantage them. This is this is Nietzsche, and, and that specifically is through Christianity, which persuaded people to have concern for the weak and to focus on charity and undeserved love uh, that would undermine individual self-interest and the justification of power, which is really what true morality, if we want to move forward as humanity for, for Nietzsche, if you want to, if humanity is to evolve uh, humanity, you have to, you have to accept that power is its own justification and that the, the strongest deserve to rule and deserve to get what they can get. And that society is basically a negotiation of the strong with the strong to, you know, make sure that they, they have mutually assured destruction so that they can survive. But basically the strong deserve to, to do what they did, what they can. You shouldn't limit that. Uh, and for Rand, Christianity is the kindergarten of communism. It leads to the same collectivist principles that ultimately lead or result to the uh, in the abuses that she witnessed in the USSR. And, you know, she says, if you begin with the obligation to serve others and to serve the collective in general, ultimately that's going to lead to statist communism. So that's bad. So you can't start with the assumptions of Christianity. You have to start with individual rights as the very core so that no one can use obligations to force you to help others as a pretext to loot from you or from anybody else to benefit themselves. So for her, you start with individualism and with individual, with the individual's right to property and right to, to power in that regard and work out from there instead of starting from the, uh, the, the assumptions of Christianity as she sees it. Now, interestingly, in Christianity, you're, you're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself, which actually does presume the self-love of the individual at the beginning, which I don't think she actually recognizes. Uh, I think her critiques of Christianity are, in some cases, they're viable in terms of what she, in, in terms of many forms of Christianity, modern Christianity that she critiques, but they're not very good critiques of, uh, of Christianity as, as it's expressed in, 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 uh, in many, especially in early Christianity, but in many, uh, in many other forms. So, <laughs> objectivism. We haven't gotten very many quotes in so far. <laughs> well, you got you got one in. Right? Yeah, I got one in. So I'll go with a, go with. A, I'm going to rapid fire a few of these things. All right, but uh, be, before you do that, uh, it was really interesting what you were just saying, and because she she does apply it to both the individual and to the group, whether in, in, with a group meaning government. So, uh, whereas some people might think of, of having the government side of things start with the individual, but in, in the personal level, maybe being more concerned with, with the poor or, or those family unit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as, uh, Russ Roberts in his book said that, uh, the family unit is is pure communism in, in a lot of uh, a lot of senses. Um, yeah, and I actually think that's one of the places where Rand falls woefully short. Mm-hmm. I think her ethics, uh, she she throughout this book, she pushes the notion. She's she's really strong on uh, has a really strong uh, emphasis on justice on on the notion of dessert. You sh- people should get what they deserve, mm-hmm. and actually. 
what's interesting is that that's a fundamental, a fundamentally Christian notion. Yeah. <laughs> right. That in itself is, is foundational to Judaism and Christianity. The, the notion of dessert that, that uh, that's actually what, uh, you know, Abraham Heschel in the, in the book, the prophets talks about this, that that's what distinguished the God of Israel from the other gods in the ancient world is with the God of Israel. People got what they deserved, period. You knew where you stood with him. Yeah. Did you do what did, did you did you ethically do what was right? Then you're going to get then you're going to get good things. If you did what was wrong, then you're going to get bad. That, that's the notion. And there's obviously some complication of that, but interesting. Anyway, and, and with but with Rand here, she didn't really distinguish between personal and right government. Right? What I she, mean, it was it was all you in your personal life. You have to start with the individual and in, in your government. Uh, the way we run things has to start with the individual. Right. I mean, so what she does is she, for example, starts with, uh, uh, you know, there's this, there's this, this quote from later in the book and, and you know, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't read it. Although, I mean, it's pretty obvious where things are going pretty early, but there's a, a character that says, uh, I'll warn you now that there is one word, which is forbidden in this Valley, the word give, and her her protagonists, as they come to understand the way that the world should work, is that everybody should get what they deserve and nothing more. And no one should that giving that is since, you know, uh, that I could give something to you that you don't deserve, that you haven't earned. That's actually bad. Right. If I give something to you that you haven't earned, then that is a miscarriage of justice in some way, because now you you have something that you you didn't deserve. Now what? Now the ba- now things are out of balance. But here's the problem. Um, what about children? Right? You have a newborn child. What does that child deserve? Now Rand would say that child deserves to live. Well, okay, but whose responsibility is it to give? to that child, all the resources that that are necessary for that child to live. Because I mean, human children are born way too early. I mean, the, 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 the crown of the head of the human, of the, of a human child is too big to pass through the, uh, the birth canal after, uh, you know, after, after nine months or a little over nine months, uh, gestation period. So human beings are born earlier than most mammals in terms of their development and finish development outside the womb. And there's a long, a pretty significantly long period of large, largely helplessness that human beings have. Every one of us goes through that period of total helplessness and dependence on the collective to raise us. And she doesn't, she doesn't address that. It's certainly not Natalie shrugged. I, I'm sure it's somewhere, somewhere in, in maybe one of our listeners who knows a little bit more on this than I do. Maybe she addresses some of this a little bit elsewhere. But this is a problem with with the notion of naked self-interest as the only ruling thing. And the idea that giving a gift that is undeserved is is a bad thing because every one of us is dependent on and owes our existence to others having done that. (laughs) And, you know, you've got a couple kids. You've you've gone through this. Those kids would die if you didn't take care of them. Mm hmm. And that's a gift that you're giving those kids. They, they haven't done anything to earn that from you. Yeah. Y- y- your responsibility is that you made them. So that's that. 
So what do they deserve from us? Well, you know, at that point, and that also gets to, you know, she, she struggles with the notion of interdependence. She, she really, really wants to push this idea that, that, you know, geniuses and those who are producers, they deserve what they have done because they've done it. And she resists the argument, you know, the, the Barack Obama argument of, well, you know, what about the road you drove in on? You didn't build that road. You didn't build that build and you didn't build that business yourself. You know, you had help. And Rand would say, well, then why didn't somebody, you know, it, oh, you invented Facebook? Well, then why, if you didn't, if you invented Facebook, then you would have invented the Facebook, right? In line from uh, the so social network, right? If you were the inventors of Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Mm -hmm. You know, why, well, then why didn't somebody else do it? But she doesn't quite recognize that, that every one of us is dependent on others for, uh, for lots of things. Now, again, does that mean that everybody has a right to everything that I do and all my property? No. So she's, she's not completely in the wrong there, but you do have to recognize that there is a dividing line between dependence and interdependence. And I think she struggles with that. And I think yeah, she struggles think with the family unit because that, that unit, like Adam Smith recognizes, like Russ Roberts writes about in the book we'll be covering soon. The family unit is one where a specific type of ethic is practiced. And then that ethic doesn't actually work very well. Once it's extended to the larger marketplace or the government, you can't mm -hmm. run the government like a family. Otherwise you're going to have lots of corruption and lots of problems. The collectivist thing doesn't work so well there. You have to open that up a little bit differently. She does better on that end than she does on the family end. And the problem is that you have to be able to do both. You have to have both. And that that's messy. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's a pendulum thing where she saw the worst of how things could get in in russia and you know probably probably went way too far on the other side yeah yeah i think so so uh a couple more quotes um <laughs> balf eubank he was described as the literary leader of the age but he had never written a book that sold more than three thousand copies <laughs> she in a few places clearly tweaks the literary elites who had panned they had they had just killed brutalized the fountainhead which sold hundreds of thousands of copies millions now and basically saying oh yeah you guys are such literary experts that you can point out all the ways that this book is crap but uh the, the public sure likes it <laughs> and she did the same thing with uh with atlas shrugged as well like oh uh huh yeah if you could do this uh then why if you were such a literary uh literary leader then why, why can't you write a book that actually sells <laughs> right and why well plot is a primitive vulgarity in literature said balf eubank contemptuously dr pritchett on his way across the room to the bar stopped to say quite so just as logic is a primitive vulgarity in philosophy just as melody is a primitive vulgarity in music said mort liddy and for her you know she's going no you know there are certain first principles that make these things what they are so, and, and, you know, the intellectuals who try to escape that have just descended into madness. They've not, they've not become smart. They've got, they've, they've educated themselves into stupidity and she's not entirely wrong. I, I think she's right by and large. I've run into a lot of intellectuals in the university setting in particular that where her critiques hit dead on the nose. <laughs> Another quote that's worth, uh, worth thinking about in here i'll give you a hint 
Contradictions do not exist. Whenever you think that you are facing a, that you are facing a contradiction, check your premises. You will find that one of them is wrong. Now, I'm not sure that there's no such thing as a contradiction ever, but I do I have found that by and large where I find people pointing to contradictions, it's not very it's not a very far uh it's not it's it doesn't take very long to identify that there's a premise that they've they've got wrong. So I, I think that's a, a general a general rule that's rule of thumb that's worth living by. All right, let's see. Um, there was nothing she could say to them. Nothing could be would be heard or answered. What were the weapons she thought in a realm where reason was not a weapon any longer? It was a realm she could not enter. And this is again some some of Rand's complaint of how can you how can you you know critique. How can you even have a discussion with someone who doesn't even agree that re that reason, you know, with the basic fundamental tenets of reason, you, you can't, you've eliminated the chance to even communicate. Um, okay, uh, let's see. You see, Dr. Stadler, people don't want to think. And the deeper they get into trouble, the less they want to think. But by some sort of instinct, they feel that they ought to, that, that they ought to, and it makes them feel guilty. So they'll bless and follow anyone who gives them a justification for not thinking. Anyone who makes a virtue, a highly intellectual virtue, out of what they know to be their sin, their weakness, and their guilt. Yep. That tends to be true. Painfully true. Um, let's see. <laughs> Two more. Uh, might be actually uh, a couple more than that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let's see. Um, there was a time when men were afraid that somebody would reveal some secret of theirs that was unknown to their fellows. Nowadays, they're afraid that somebody will name what everybody knows. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Have you practical people ever thought that it's all that it would that that's all it would take to blast your whole big complex structure with all your laws and your guns? just somebody naming the exact nature of what you're doing. There's a lot of truth to that these days yeah. that there, you know, on social media, if you just state the obvious in certain cases, there will be a flood of people ready to, to take pitchforks and fire to you. It is interesting. This one's funny. The crowd knew from the newspapers that he represented the evil of ruthless wealth and as they praised the virtue of chastity, then ran to, to see any movie that displayed a half-naked female on its posters, so they came to see him. Evil, at least, did not have the stale hopelessness of a bromide which none believed and none dared to challenge. She did have a gift for pointing out contradictions and how people didn't exactly live according to the principles that they claimed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you might have to worry about any other breed of men but not about the modern intellectuals. They'll swallow anything. I don't feel so safe about the lousiest wharf rat in the Longshoremen's Union. He's liable to remember suddenly that he is a man, and then I won't be able to keep him in line. But the intellectuals? That's the one thing they've forgotten long ago. I guess it's the one thing that all their education was aimed to make them forget. Do anything you please to the intellectuals. They'll take it. <laughs> this was true in Russia, and it's still true today. And uh, it you know, reminds me of something that Jay Bujashevsky, a, a philosopher uh, at, at um, University of Texas, Austin, uh, says once in a while. He says that there are certain types of stupidity 
that it takes a highly educated person to commit. <laughs> a person must be highly ed- must be highly educated and intelligent in order to commit those acts of stupidity. Um, run for from for your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of an approaching looter. So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. So if you get away from the market and you get away from trade, well, the only way that things are going to work is by force, and that's not a good substitute. So you might want to stick with the money thing. That And that was something that really stuck out to me. Like, uh, you know, I read it 10 years ago, but but some of the the key things that stick out this this is one of them the the discussion of money in this book and i she she brings out a good distinction of uh a a lot of people getting getting it getting it mixed up on money being the root of all evil compared to the love of money being the root of all evil she attacks both of them yes Mm -hmm. but she does she especially attacks the idea that money is the root of all evil yeah uh, one, one of the quotes that I, that I always think of, uh, from this book. So you think that money is the root of all evil. Have you ever asked what is the root of money? <laughs> money is a tool of exchange, which, which can't exist unless there are goods produced by men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or, or by the looters who take it from you by force money is made possible only by the men who produce is this what you consider evil that's yeah, a brilliant quote actually yeah and and some of her be- like you said some of the best stuff she does is actually in that chapter it's a, the speech of friend uh, francisco d'anconia uh at, uh and he a lot of what she says about money and trade there is dead on right and she and to her credit she also recognizes that money we've talked about this a lot on this on, on this show uh, in other episodes, um, but we've talked about how money is effectively liquid time, mm-hmm. right? That money that that if you gain time, you're actually gaining money, and then it, you know you give money, you give time to get money, you give money to get time, etc. But that's what money is. Money is time and effort and all of that that can be exchanged because you you can't get past time back, but you can get money in exchange for your present time or for your past time or whatever. And so that that's the thing that you, that allows you to exchange pieces of your life. And she recognizes that she, she points that out and specifically she, she actually, re- I think rightly recognizes that money is in that respect, a way of quantifying and valuing life itself. And so for her money is, uh, you know, one of the things that if anything should be pretty close to worshiped. Because money is a representation of life. Now, again, she takes that a step further than probably she should. But Mm -hmm. the recognition of what it is, is not wrong. Now, uh, you know, those those of you who are familiar with uh, with the New Testament are probably feeling a little bit. Um, th- those in the audience who, who, who are familiar are probably a little bit uncomfortable with that notion because there is in uh, in first Timothy. The statement, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what it says in, in, in that's a, a better translation of the Greek of that, of that passage. And she 
and it's regularly misquoted as money is the root of all evil. Yeah. She attacks that vigorously. Mm -hmm. And then she steps back and she says, oh, and then, you know, oh, so you're going to say, though, well, money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Then she attacks that as well, which actually that's also not what it what it says. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, okay. Not quite, but, uh, but, uh, so she, she attacks the, the second one when she says, Oh, or did you say that the love of money is that it's the love of money. That's the root of all evil to love a thing is to know and love its nature to love money is to know and love the fact that the money is the creation of the best power within you, Eros, and your pass key to trade your effort for the effort of the best among men. It is the person who would sell his soul for a nickel who is loudest in proclaiming his hatred of money, and he has good reason to hate it. The lovers of money are willing to work for it. They know they are able to deserve it. And then she then finishes and she says that phrase about the evil of money, which you mouth such righteous about which you mouth or which you mouth with such right righteous recklessness comes from a time in which your wealth or when wealth was produced by the labor of slaves, slaves who repeated the motions once discovered by somebody's mind and left unimproved for centuries. So long as production was ruled by force and wealth was obtained by conquest, there was little to conquer. Yet through the centuries of stagnation and starvation, men exalted the looters as aristocrats of the sword, the aristocrats of birth aristocrats of the bureau and despise the producers as slaves as traders and shopkeepers as industrialists so she observes that you know the evil of the love of money or the evil of money that phrase comes from a different time and she also critiques the idea that well to love a thing is to love and to know it's to know and to love its nature but she actually interestingly in that passage shifts her definition of what money is just slightly and makes a little bit of a category error because actually with what first Timothy is talking about is the love of money. That is uh, someone who's willing to do anything to get money by any means effectively. That person that causes, you know, all, all kinds of evil for her. She's saying money that is the result of production. The lovers of money are willing to work for it. Those people are getting money by the consequence of their work. There's nothing against that in first Timothy. What first Timothy is against is someone who loves wealth, loves money to such a degree that they're going to lie, cheat and steal and do all sorts of things to get the money so that they can have it. It's not the it's not quite the same thing that it's critiquing as what she's actually addressing here. So it's worth worth noting that that distinction. But I think much of what she says about money is is actually right. And one place where she's mistaken is she insists numerous places on the idea that only gold or silver, you know, the, the, the idea of objective money, as opposed to what she calls a counterfeit pile of paper, <laughs> right? She says, kills all objective standards and delivers men into the arbitrary power of an arbitrary settler of values. Gold was an objective value, an equivalent of wealth produced, Paper is a mortgage on wealth that does not exist, backed by a gun aimed at those who are expected to produce it. Paper is a check drawn by legal looters upon an account which is not theirs upon the virtue of the victims. And this is shortly, you know, this is around the time of most nations going off the gold standard and eventually everyone. Uh, And she objects to that saying, no, you know, gold, silver, you know, commodities are objective money and moving to, to, to paper currency doesn't, you know, that, that, that's, that's fake. 
Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, this denying existence thing that she gets to. I, I think she's fundamentally mistaken with that idea. First of all, gold and silver are not objectively valuable and, you know, beyond what, what you could make with them or what you can use them for. There's nothing inherently more valuable, objectively more valuable uh, about gold as a currency than paper or anything else. It's an agreed upon uh, point of exchange. And this is where Milton Friedman uh, wrote a book called Money Mischief, where he addresses this point. It's, again, worth 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 um, worth dealing with here. He's right. Every from, from Friedman, he goes through all sorts of money throughout the ages and different forms of currency exchange. And he says, look, every form of currency is ultimately by fiat and by, by the agreement of those who are part of the market in some level. Now, the question is, whose fiat is actually governing this? If it's and, 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 and there she may actually have a point that if it's the currency that's only good by fiat of the government itself, rather than by the mar- the agreement of the marketplace for other reasons, then the government can start meddling with and twisting, you know, start dealing with that money in ways that it, that it couldn't otherwise. And, uh, and, you know, tampering with the money supply in ways that, that cause the value, to, the value of money to be unpredictable. And then that, that leads to potentially for her that, 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 you're, now you're playing with the very foundations of justice. Uh, well, it, it, one one thing real quick. It'll be be really interesting to to go over the book uh, debt. That's one of our books on the on our list by uh, David Gra- yeah. Graber. Yep. Um, secondly, this just makes it all the more interesting that Alan Greenspan was such a friend of hers. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. if she's that against paper money and Greenspan's kind of the person in charge of that for, uh, for quite a long time. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, at some level he tried, I mean, they were not going to go back on the gold standard. I mean, that yeah. was, that, that's yeah. just not going to happen, but he tried to apply certain principles that would be more amenable to how she would want things to be run. But, but yeah, that is a, an interesting contradiction huh. without question. Um, but you know, and and she is right that that the looters, particularly like in the USSR and elsewhere, they would seize the gold and other things that uh, th- from from those who had it, and then introduce paper money, and then periodically, you know, you'd have busts of paper money, and everything that you that you had could be worthless the next day because it wasn't acceptable as 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 medium of trade. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know, gold, if you had gold coins. Once the once the paper money was worthless, because gold had previously been accepted, you know more people would be like willing to to exchange for that. But uh, you know Friedman talks about how people in other other places have exchanged rocks. Uh, you know in prisons, uh, cigarettes often have currency value. You know there's you know a, half a cigarette is worth you know this much you know the exchange value it current it, what what serves as the the medium of exchange as the currency itself is really not relevant what matters though is how it, it is is who governs what it's worth and how that value is is arrived at at least that's that's friedman's argu- argument and i found his i find his argument more persuasive than uh, than rand's there yeah either way back back to rand's quotes I, the the money Money discussions had a 
had a big impact and in, in, in especially that distinction uh, in, in this discussion helped it even more. But but the distinction between, uh, I guess, going after money as, as the evil thing compared to the love of money. Right. Right. Yeah. Are, are you willing, if you're willing to work to produce something in order to get money, then that is not actually, that's not evil. In fact, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think I, I can agree with her saying that. Yeah. And, and further to that, if you have a lot of money because of that, you're not a bad person. Right. Where, where, where a person might be bad in terms of how and, and a person's wealth is not a marker of whether that person is good or bad. How that person obtained wealth can be a marker of yeah. whether that person is good or bad. And Rand recognizes that some people gain their money by force, by the point of a gun, by uh, crony capitalism, by cheating, by lying, etc. And for her, that is evil. And interestingly, by the way, she actually says those people, their money will not actually work for them. <laughs> I, quite I, prevalent in uh, Proverbs. Yeah, she she basically says uh, the man who attempts, for example, the man uh, who attempts to, to purchase the brain of his superiors to serve him with his money replacing his judgment ends up becoming the victim of his inferiors. Right. She yeah. says uh, that there is a law that which he has not discovered that no man may be smaller than his money. Right. He says, money, is, uh, uh, money will not replace you as the driver. It will give you the means for the satisfaction of your desires, but it will not provide you with desires. Money is the scourge of the men who attempt to reverse the law of causality, the men who seek to replace the mind by seizing the products of the mind. So, you know, and she, she talks about how money itself has a, you know, it, it, will, it, will, uh, it, it will follow the laws of justice, so such that, you know, if you that the person who inherits a, a great amount of money, if that person isn't worthy of it, then they'll the, the, then the money will eventually find its way out uh, out of that person's hands, though, I will say today's uh, trust funds and all sorts of things like that have done their best to el- eliminate that those factors. And I think Rand actually would would have a very dim view of a large portion of how our. Uh, economic of how our financial markets work of how our general economy runs in terms of the way that it's basically in trying to find uh, there've been all sorts of ways attempted to find uh, or all all sorts of attempts to find ways around the what she refers to as the laws of causality Mm -hmm. that money is not produced in the ways that she regards as as a positive you think about, you know, money is created, is generated by debt, and the, the vast majority, this is where the book debt, where we'll, we'll come back to this, this concept later uh, when, we, when we cover that one, but uh, money is actually created not by someone making steel or laying a, 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 a railroad or whatever. It's created at the snap of a finger or by the click of a, of a button when someone borrows from a bank, mm. whether from the central bank or, or elsewhere. And for her, that notion of where of, of wealth creation would be a, that that's, that's, that's bordering on, uh, on an injustice of, of the highest order. 
Yeah. And, and here's a here's a quote that uh, that that I had marked. If you ask me to name the proudest distinction of Americans, I would choose because it contains all the others. The fact that they were the people who created the phrase to make money. No other language or nation had ever used these words before. Men had always thought of wealth as a static quantity to be seized, bagged, inherited, shared, looted or obtained as a favor. Americans were the first to understand that wealth has to be created. No, the words to make money hold the essence of human morality. <laughs> yeah, and, and and for her, that actually makes makes some amount of sense if you are talking about money being made by production, production. by you know, yeah. by you actually you invent the iPhone. Yeah. Value, value added, value added and value added resulting in more money in the system. Therefore, money is created. Mm -hmm. If money, if money is made by borrowing from a bank and you press the button and now there's more money that's created out of thin air, which is actually how it works. Her, her, her statements about this actually don't, they're, they're completely, they're completely, they're, they're irrelevant. So now I do think, by the way, she's mistaken about the USA's origins and its wealth. Mm -hmm. you know, she she says, uh, you know, the country. The uh, uh, she says there's a reverent tribute to pay to America for this means a country of reason, justice, freedom, production, and achievement. For the first time, man's m mind and money were set free, and there were no fortunes by conquest, but only fortunes by work. And instead of swordsmen and slaves, there appeared the real, real maker of wealth, the greatest worker, the highest type of human being, the self-made man, the American industrialist. Yeah. That no one that America had not seized, begged, inherited, shared, eluded, or obtained money by you know means such as that. Um, okay, so well, about that, you know, those yeah. pesky Native Americans that Amer that the United States in in its early years drove off of its soil and seized their land, and you know all that that that's a bit of a problem and then you know the whole slavery in the south thing building up the wealth of the south at the time uh that's a bit of a problem um so you know you've got conquest you've got slavery um where did the and when did the united states become the uh the rising power in the world well by loaning the rest of the money the world money in world war 1 when the when the european powers took their dying breaths as uh, as as empires fighting one another in the US loaned them US companies and the US itself loaned them all sorts of money that then ended up getting paid back and all this and made the US the the world's pre preeminent superpower after that so she's not exactly right about that but you know it it doesn't work quite as well for her narrative <laughs> to to recognize that so yeah. Any, any other quotes? Um, one more, and this leads into a, I think a, a really, um, uh, well, two more. Uh, this is one of the other ones that relates to money. Uh, this one will, will wrap up the money thing uh, with this. If an heir is equal to his money, it serves him. If not, it destroys him. But you look on and you cry that money corrupted him. Did it? Or did he corrupt his money? Eh, you know. Good question. Yeah. Chicken or egg thing here. 
But then this this final thing leads us into um, this final quote leads us into a a little bit more uh, one other thing that I wanted to discuss here that I found really interesting, uh, and that is her view of sex and sexuality. So you know if you've got young ears and you have uh, that are listening here, if you have any concerns about that 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 people would hear uh, things that they shouldn't, this would be the time to forward a little bit. But um, but she does have, uh, she, she makes a statement. She says, a man's sexual choice is the result and sum of his fundamental convictions. Tell me what a man finds sexually attractive and I'll tell you his entire philosophy of life. Show me the woman he sleeps with and I will tell you his valuation of himself. I found that actually quite profound. I think she's fundamentally right when she says that. Now, it would be unpo- it's unpopular today to refer to sexual choice because we somehow seem to think that people are that that's one area where we have as little choice as possible right up until we have right up until the the question of um consent which is a different issue but uh but yeah this idea tell me what a man finds sexually attractive and I'll tell you his entire philosophy of life show me the woman he sleeps with and I'll tell you his valuation of himself and of course it works vice versa for her as well um that and her general portrayal of and discussion of sexuality in this book, I found really interesting. Uh, again, this is money and sex and production and all that. This is the book of Eros, and she's dealing a lot with that. Uh, but I found I found a lot of things about how she addressed that subject really fascinating. For one, I thought her portrayals of sex in the book almost startlingly violent. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, that's something that stood out to me that uh, and it actually, you know, she refers to she consistently refers to uh, sex as, you know, a matter of conquest and possession going both directions. But it's a matter of conquest and possession. And, and, and again, there's a lot of violence in how she dip, and how she narrates these scenes uh, and in some ways, in some passages that are. Uh, that would be that, that that are quite problematic in today's era. So you know, there's there's this passage where he says, you know, she says a, a shocking intimacy that needed no consent from her, no permission. She tried to pull herself away, but she only leaned back against his arms long enough to see his face and his smile, the smile that told her she had given that told her she had given him permission long ago. She thought that she must escape. Instead, it was she who pulled his head down to find his mouth again. Yeah, um, that whole like, well, you know, you gave me permission a long time ago. You don't have to give me consent. Hmm. Today, that's uh, not going to go very well. That that shows a little bit of a difference in era for one. Uh, another one. She knew that fear was useless. That he would do what he wished. That the decision was his. That he left nothing possible to her except the thing she wanted most to submit. Or she knew only that she was afraid, yet what she felt was as if she were crying to him, don't ask me for it. Oh, don't ask me. Do it. Right? Don't ask my consent. Don't ask. <sighs> right? <laughs> and then you have, again, this, this notion of sex as, as degrading and conquest and possession in many respects, but also a reflection of the highest you know, highest uh, uh, desires as well. 
So, you know, she's got a character saying submit, you know, that, um, uh, that what what is appealing here is, is is getting this person to submit to any submitting to any infamous whim which I may devise to any act which I'll perform for the sole purpose of watching your dishonor and to which you'll submit for the sake of an unspeakable sensation. Right. This whole notion of sex as dishonoring in some way and, and that degrading and dishonoring a person is actually a part of the pleasure. There's a certain violence to that that. I found uncomfortable, uh, though, you know, I, I perhaps some readers may not, but I found her her view of how that worked uh, and 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 sort of the nature of that, the violent nature of that. Suboptimal uh, that that it would be better to bring in a bit more, um, uh, you know, concern for the other that sex is not, as she says, uh, the the single act that is completely selfish. No, you should actually. Yes, it is a selfish thing as well, but it should also be about the other. And I think she misses that to some degree. But so that, where, where where does all this come from, though? I mean, it, is it in line with the the entire philosophy? Well, I her, think her entire philosophy, or I think it is. If you're if you're taking the idea of the individual, and that the individual basically taking you know pursuing what you desire in and of itself as a good thing uh yeah yeah that 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 works because that the boundary the the, the bound on what makes something good or bad is really do you desire it and you know is it is it now at the same point your your desires can be she acknowledges that you know your desires can be misguided or distorted if you refuse to accept reality that for her not accepting reality is the source of bad desires but as long as you're rea- as long as you're grounded in reality then your desires are fine so if you want to de- you know to degrade and take this person provided that you're not imposing upon their in- in individual rights as well then perfectly fine i mean it's kind it's in a way it's similar to her her thoughts on not giving right 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 now you only give in as much as you're, you're as there there's an exchange here right so in in the sexual act there is an exchange each partner is willing to give in some respect is willing to toss themselves into the in, into this as a part of an exchange each of which is each the motivation for each of them is selfish. They're getting what they want out of the, out of the act and out of the, out of the relationship in that case, in that moment. Uh, and each of them has agreed to use the other. And that's, that's that as long as the, as long as they're understanding and acknowledging that that is what they're doing, then it's okay. But what, the, what it shouldn't be is that you're motivated by the other Right. You're not motivated by love of the other in, in terms of giving them their pleasure. You're taking your pleasure and giving them pleasure in exchange. And they're doing the same. And it's sort of an uh, again, it's a transactional approach. Mm-hmm. So that said, I do think so that that's interesting. I'll just say that. I do think that there is more that sex tends to be if we're if we're if we're realistic about it, it does tend to be more transactional than many of us would like to acknowledge. Uh, 
and actually I, I this is why I've said in the past that I actually have more respect for the prostitute who uh, actually places a value on uh, on on herself in that in that regard uh, over the the person who will just go and you know one night stand hook up with somebody from a bar because you know you're not getting anything in in the same in the same respect in exchange there so you know the, you're actually getting more value on the on the other side so uh, or the woman you know the the woman who will uh, go home with a guy for a couple drinks versus you know a prostitute who actually demands more payment. Which one's placing a higher value on herself is is an interesting discussion. Uh, but in any case, we'll we can move on from that. Where I think she's actually on on the right track, and this is where the quote comes from, is this idea of not disconnecting sex from the rest of life. Spirit and body are not these disconnected entities that should be regarded as opposites that, you know, sex is this degraded thing that, you know, we should be ashamed of. Uh, She basically says, listen, the man who tries to despise himself or the man who despises himself is ultimately going to try to gain self-esteem from sexual adventures, which can't be done because sex is not the cause, but an effect and an expression of a man's sense of his own value. I think she's right about that. Yeah. And she says, observe the ugly mess, which most men make of their sex lives and observe the mess of contradictions, which they hold as their moral philosophy. One proceeds from the other. Love is our response to our highest values and can be nothing else. And of course, when we read love in her, in her book, and whenever she speaks positively about it, she's talking about Eros. Now, the interesting thing is she she doesn't hold to a notion of monogamy. What we see in, in her characters is a serial monogamy that, that as they gain respect and so on with one another or t- towards one another, they uh, they pair up for time and then you know they move on or whatever. But uh, and and this is supposed to be a place you know again sex is governed by reason. And, you know, you shouldn't, you, you don't let emotion come into this emotion is, you know, it's not an emotional thing. You recognize that this is an exchange and that, you know, this is a part of, this is just what we want to do together to give one another pleasure and we should feel no shame about it or anything else. That, that's a reflection of her values as much as she recognizes them. Now, the, I, the, the, I think the, the revealing thing here is that this, that she lived this out in her own life. And this, as much as anything else is what wound up being what damaged her and brought chaos to those around her. And a good place to, to go for that is Jennifer Burns, uh, the goddess of the market, the book there. It's also a podcast, uh, the econ talk podcast uh, from actually not that long ago uh, where she talks about this well worth listening to worth reading that book to look at how this, approach to sex actually you can look at how rand herself made an ugly mess of her sex life yeah that that was a fascinating episode and jason you talk a lot about the importance of ideas working across cultures and at different times and and to me this is one of those things like here she's writing about this idea it makes sense to her uh it's it's in her books, but then when she lived it out, it it didn't work, right? And 
so I, I, yeah. And, and, and the irony of that, of, of her being, you know, this person that put, put this philosophy forward and, and then for it to really destroy her is, is really incredible. Yeah. I mean, again, I agree where she says, uh, sex is a physical capacity, which functions, or, uh, she says, um, uh, that the opposite of this, she says it, it is not that sex is a physical capacity, which functions independently of, a, of one's mind choice or code of values. They think that your body creates a desire and makes a choice for you just as about just about in some such way as if iron ore transformed itself into railroad rails of its own volition. Love is blind. They say sex is impervious to reason and mocks the, all the power the power of all philosophers. And she opposes that idea. And she's right. Hmm. Sex is not a physical capacity that functions independently of one's mind, choice, or code of values. Mm-hmm. You know this as a faithful husband. Are there other women that you've been attracted to since you've been married? Of course. But your mind, choice, and code of values says, no, I'm not going to pursue those women. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is actually where I think Rand doesn't fully go the direction that her philosophy should require. And that's that if you really want to make a proper exchange, it's a life for a life here. The commitment and discipline in this area that require it, that, that are required to keep it from blowing up and making a mess are the very things that she leaves off. And she regards the, the more traditional notions of, of sexuality as, oh, sex is bad. But that's not really it. What, you know, say Judaism and Christianity are, are saying and, and you could throw Islam and others in there as well. The more traditional perspective on this is not that sex is bad, but that it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. It's that it's a very good thing, but it's dangerous and it needs to be managed within specific bounds and governed by choice and code of values and discipline. Otherwise it's going to make a mess both individually and of society. And she loosens the bonds there and says, well, you know, you should be allowed to pursue what you want here. So long as the other person is within their own rights as well, you should be able to give each other pleasure and it shouldn't be restricted in that way. Well, good luck with that. I I wonder, so this, this was written in 57. She died in 82 uh, in this, the, the, the issues that happened in her personal life were after this book. Yeah. They were mostly in the late sixties, early seventies. I I wonder if she, I wonder if she wrote anything after that or or if she changed her mind on any, I don't think she changed her mind on any of this. Now she did basically go, go off on, you know, the guy that hurt her. Yeah. Uh, But you know, that emotion came in. That's, that's the thing. It's going to happen. Yeah, it's hard to emotion uh, and attachment things in, in, in reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. Reason. Reason is wrapped up with emotion as well. And this is, you know, this goes back to the Daniel Kahneman thing. Uh, you know, Rand is trying to push reason versus emotion in many cases. Mm-hmm. That feeling is to be overruled by by reason, which takes no stock of feeling. Mm hmm. But, you know, some of those studies have shown that and, and what we saw in, in uh, both uh, Talib Fooled by Randomness and in uh, Daniel Kahneman's uh, book, which is uh, escaping my 
think, the, thinking fast and thinking slow. fast and slow. Another uh, another couple episodes we've done. They talk about how when people are uh, when people don't have access to emotions, they actually can't make decisions. They actually don't have access to be able to make reasoned decisions. Emotion has to be emotion is a part of the uh of the of the thinking stew that makes us human and makes and allows us to think rationally paradoxically True. so and and she doesn't she doesn't go with that so um so yeah that that's another another important piece so um so yeah well uh can i do one quote here yeah I mean, uh, this your, your show man this <laughs> this is one that um this is probably the the one that stuck out to me the most in the one I think about most often from from this book. And that is nobody traced the closing of a motor company in Michigan that had waited for a shipment of ball bearings, its machinery idle, its workers on full pay, or the closing of a sawmill in Oregon that had waited for a new motor, or the closing of a lumber yard in Iowa left without supply. Or the bankruptcy in a building contractor in Illinois who, failing to get his lumber on time, found his contracts canceled and the purchasers of his home sent wandering off down snow-swept roads in search of that which did not exist anywhere any longer. That, that first sentence, nobody traced the closing of this. Uh, it, it comes in a part of the book where, where she's talking about the impact of, of government and how it can stop things from happening and it, it, it can have a, a snowball effect. So nobody traced the closing of this one motor company that had waiting for a shipment of ball bearings. Uh, but the ball bearings didn't happen because of something with the government. And then that, it, that had this snowball effect. And that, that's one of the biggest things that, that stuck out to me in this book is, is how easily things on the government side of things can, can can mess things up uh and and i know a lot of people when they read this book they see the this the selfish side of things the individualism but one of the things that really stuck out to me and and i guess impacted me on in a, a political sense was the the power the government has and the power that it has to let some things happen or or halt some things and how, how that balance has to be there. there I mean, there has to be, um, there has to be rules in place, but then how far do those rules go? Or, or can, can, can the rules have a, a, a negative impact? And, and the, can the rules actually be followed, which is yeah. something, one of the interesting things in here is that she points out that in many cases, Governments may governments introduce complex legislation that is essentially impossible for for everyone or for anyone to follow fully precisely in order to make laws so that that everyone will end up breaking them so that everyone can be held under control. Because if anybody can be locked up for anything, for, for something, then everybody is ultimately under control of the people who have the capacity to lock them up. Yeah. So, you know, that's where are the laws actually made to be just, or are they made to keep people under control? And that's another side to that too. Yeah. 
so yeah it's really uh thought-provoking in in that sense and and something that had a major impact on my on my thinking one of my 10 years later one of the 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 main things i i think of when i think of this book yeah and 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 it's unintended consequences that she's really getting at and yeah and, yeah. and that's you know the law of unintended consequences is important you have to be able to try to you have to understand that things are so interconnected and that's what she's trying to show in this massive tome is the interconnectedness of things and how everything depends you know one thing depends on another and specifically on the production of you know, very uh, motivated and bright people. It, one person in one industry gets gets moved, get, gets removed, and suddenly that makes things so much harder on everybody else. She she's trying to show unintended consequences in in much of this, and you know, does a reasonable job with it. Yeah. So, quick question for you, Jason. Uh, after reading this book, do you now, uh, when you hear of somebody dying? Do you wonder if they've actually gone <laughs> to a, di- a different place to join? Uh, to, like if they've gone to join Tupac? Yeah. <laughs> gone gone to be with Colorado. Tupac and Elvis? Yeah. No, I, I haven't haven't had that thought at all, no. <laughs> other than other than with Tupac, of course. Yeah. yeah. But um but uh I I think one one final thing before we get to conclusions. Uh is I think it's it's it, we we need to return back to how she is really so so vigorously trying to set up a standard of justice and uh, on the basis of dessert. Uh, so what you deserve, people should get what they deserve, and how much she tries to set that at odds with the tendencies toward mercy and gift giving and. Uh, unmerited benefits that people you know are that, that that so many other ethical systems try to push uh she she pushes so hard against those things against what people assume would be virtue and says no virtue is calling a thing what it is is giving a person what that person deserves it's not virtue to give someone something that that person doesn't deserve in fact that's a miscarriage of justice and again, this gets back to why she's so widely hated by by so many people, because, you know, if you say, listen, that poor person on the street, give that person some, you know, get, let's buy that person a meal. You know, it'll at least, you know, make you feel make you feel better that you did something and that person will benefit. And she she might say, no, you're actually fostering bad behavior and you're introducing injustice into the world because that person doesn't deserve a meal or they'd be, they'd have gone out and gotten it themselves. Oh, <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I, I can, I, I think, um, it's, it, I think I want to start here by talking about how she actually critiques notions. She's really attacking notions of original sin on the, this Augustinian concept of concupiscence that is associated with Western Christianity. Uh, this idea that human beings are all born, uh, with a fundamental, uh, fundamental they're, they're born fundamentally already culpable for sin that they're that they're already warped and and rotten at the beginning uh, and specifically also then ca- the calvinists take this further certain protestants take this further and have this notion this doctrine of total depravity that human beings are born in a totally depraved state with nothing good 
in you inherently at all. And she ravages these ideas. She, she regards these as foundationally and inherently unjust notions. And I actually tend to agree with her. I, I think Augustine's notion of, of original sin is, is, is an unjust concept. It's certainly not a concept that shows up in the new Testament, interestingly, but you have her have some of the, some of her characters have some of these, these moments where you see what they're critiquing and what she's attacking. And it's worth noting and then worth interacting with a little bit before we, before we close. So you have this conversation between two characters. Uh, Taggart is uh, James Taggart is, is, is complaining about his sister Dagny. And he says, because she thinks she's so good. What right does she have to think it? What right does anybody has anybody to think he's good? Nobody's any good. You don't mean it, Mr. Taggart. I mean, we're only human beings. And what's a human being? A weak, ugly, sinful creature, born that way, rotten in his bones. So humility is the one virtue he ought to practice. He ought to spend his life on his knees, begging to be forgiven for his dirty existence. You can see how the sexuality thing comes into that as well, which in Augustinian you know, concupiscence, actually sexuality, sex is the means of delivery of original sin. You, 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 you are respond you are uh stained with the seed of original sin because well look at how you were created man um so uh you know he ought to spend life on his knees begging to be to be forgiven for his dirty existence when a man thinks he's good that's when he's rotten pride is the worst of all sins no matter what he's done but what if a man knows but if a man knows that what he's done is good then he ought to apologize for it to whom to those who haven't done it and you can see how she makes this in, into an absurdity, but it doesn't take very much of a move to make it into an absurdity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this idea, when a man thinks he's good, that's when he's rotten. Pride is the worst of all sins, no matter what he's done. And for her, pride in doing good is actually the highest of virtues. She, she flips it. And I would say neither. <laughs> so you have another, uh, he says... I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. Unhappiness is the hallmark of virtue. If a man is unhappy, really, truly unhappy, it means he, that he is a superior sort of person. And she, she mocks the, the idea that people feel a smug sort of superiority out of the fact that they don't indulge in pleasure, out of the fact that they don't enjoy themselves, etc., and she regards this as, again, you're not getting what you deserve. You're not getting the, the, if you are truly a good person and you're not getting benefit, you're not enjoying yourself. That's, un, that's injustice. That's unjust. All right. Back, back to the pride thing. I, I, I can't remember if this was in the Russ Roberts book, but where he talks about the, the New Testament parable of the publican and the, and the, the man beating his breast. Right. And, and what was it in that book? Uh, it in, it's, it's escaping my, my mind as well. At okay. The moment. Well, what, uh, it was a recent book I read. I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one I, Oh, it might've been the, um, Oh, it was uh, poor Charlie's almanac. He, he thinks that people read that story incorrectly in that Generally people do. Yes. That the publican, if, if you, if you have pride in what you've, if you've done r right, uh, I, it was just, it was a different Charlie Munger has a different reading on that than than I thought uh, or than I've heard most of my life. But it kind of ties in with what you just the quote you just read of of uh, 
I mean, she's she's showing the other side of it. Pride is the worst of all sins, no matter what he's done. Um, but goes into that that idea there. So that's um, yeah. We'll cover that when we get to the to that to that book. It'll it, yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll make sure we cover that. But I do think that that is often misunderstood. I mean, the the assumption is that the publican is someone who the publican is is, is basically a tax collector. And the way that taxes were collected in those days, it was not a matter of um, the IRS. Basically, you had thugs that went around to collect, to, to, to go around and, and demand that people pay them the money that then would get delivered up the chain to uh, the governor who then would deliver it to, you know, the people above him and it would make, make its way to, to Caesar. But basically, what you would do to make money is however much you could skim off the top was what you'd make. So you'd, you'd, take more than was demanded with more than the taxes that were demanded in order to skim off the skim extra off the top so that you could enrich yourself. Well, yeah, that would be that the assumption is that the guy who's beating his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner is that guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not someone who thinks he's righteous or, or, or uh, in that case. Now the Pharisee does, but, but Jesus has already been clear that the Pharisee isn't. So, it's another another question altogether. We can address that uh, down the line. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, then a uh, little further. That's the conceit I'm talking about. The idea that it matters who's right or wrong. It's the most insufferable form of vanity. The insistence on always doing right. How do you know what's right? How can anyone ever know it? It's nothing but a dis- delusion to flatter your own ego and to hurt other people by fla- flaunting your superior superiority over them. It's only a question of different strains, but it's the same shoddy human fabric that gives way just as quickly. You wouldn't be tempted by money because it's so easy for you to make, but you wouldn't withstand other pressures and you'd fall just as ignominiously, wouldn't you? So you have no right to any righteous indignation against them. You have no moral superiority to assert or to defend. And if you haven't, then what's the point of fighting a battle that you can't win? I suppose that some that one might find some satisfaction in being a martyr if one is above reproach, but you, who are you to cast the first stone? And and nice, this is still this is still all all Jim Taggart speaking no, here. That this is actually um this is toward uh this is uh, Henry Reardon's wife Lillian okay. Reardon toward him saying, okay. you know you're you're judging these other people. Who are you to judge these people? Who are you to cast the first stone? And nice again biblical. Uh, quotation from the from the gospel of john there um but basically her idea is that this that that once you start with the idea that human beings are all nasty brutish you know dirt who you know people who are rotten to the core who should live on their knees you know begging to be forgiven and that nobody nobody has a right to to think you know think that they've done anything good well then that just undermines any sense that there is anything right because if we're all sinners and we're all, you know, equally bound to that and none of us can throw the throw a stone, then how can I judge you for doing something that I don't like? How could I know that that's right or wrong? And so and she rightly sees that it doesn't take too long along this 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 trajectory before you get to the place where there is no right or wrong. And, and it, this kind of ties back to her critique of of is it social, social constructionism then? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she 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 sees these things as bound together. Now it's in, it's worth noting that earliest Christianity did not believe in original sin. This is more or less an Augustinian invention, uh, and it's something that in Eastern Christianity they still don't hold to. Uh, this is something you know 
total depravity is a is a Calvinist distortion. Um, but this is not native to you know a large to large portions of, of Christianity. But she rightly critiques a lot of that. She's right when she says, "What kind of God is it that's going to condemn someone for something that they didn't do?" Like you're condemned because you're born a certain way. Like, come on. She says, that's not just. Is she wrong? She says, no, nah, that's a problem. And then, uh, and, and so she wants to, to push against that to say, no, you know, if there's going to be any judgment in this, there needs to be standards and people should, you should be able to recognize when someone does something good and when someone does something bad and they should get what they deserve on that. Which interestingly is what we find in like Romans chapter two, for example, a lot of people think Paul, uh, the apostle believes in uh, people getting what they don't deserve or whatever, whatever else, as it turns out, he actually, he's actually more of an advocate of this kind of dessert thing than, than, than Rand is. She, she doesn't quite go the whole hog on this. He does. Um, and then beyond that, she attacks as a part of this. The notion we've already talked about this a little bit, the notion of of giving uh, and particularly this idea of of unmerited giving, which, you know, for a lot of people, the, the notion of grace in Christianity is this idea of unmerited favor. She th- she sees this as anathema to justice and, and you know, a couple proof passages for her there. Uh, may, maybe the best is this one where she says, if you tell a beautiful woman that she's beautiful, what have you given her? It's no more than a fact and it's cost you nothing. But if you tell an ugly woman that she is beautiful, you offer her the great homage of corrupting the concept of beauty. (laughs) To love a woman for her virtues is meaningless. She's earned it. It's a payment, not a gift. But to love her for her vices is a real gift, unearned and undeserved. To love her for her vices is to defile all virtue for her sake. And that is a real tribute of love because you sacrifice your conscience, your reason, your integrity, and your invaluable self-esteem. And so for her, justice demands that you recognize that that woman is beautiful and that's okay. That's, that's just a statement of fact and that you respond. If someone is unloving and unlovable, then you don't love that person and, and so on. Giving a gift that is undeserved is a miscarriage of justice. But here's the thing. She doesn't understand how reciprocity so we already talked about the children thing and how mm-hmm. this this works she doesn't seem to recognize the problem there at all that it, within families especially with children it can't work that way because i can tell you right now you know this full well that at six months old your child is not is not uh deserving of your love and your admiration at two o'clock in the morning when it's screaming its lungs out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's just not that, that you're, you're not the exchange. There is not one where, you know, you're paying that child for its virtues. <laughs> well, let's take it. Let's take it to the government side of things. So she, she points out all these ways that injustices occur at the government level from moochers from looters but if if that's going on if she's correctly pointing that out that that causes injustice to where some people are not going to 
have the justice that they they should be having. So it's going to create unequal results, correct? From this injustice that that occurs. So what what's the problem of giving a gift to someone who's a victim of that injustice? Right. Well, see for her then the two wrongs don't necessarily make a right. The 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 okay. the, the right to do, the right to take care of is to dismantle the system that is causing the injustice to begin with. You, but you don't ever help in, in her worldview. You don't ever help the person that is a victim of the injustice. No, it, it, you know she it, at different points and outside of Atlas Shrugged, she acknowledged that it's okay to you know have it to 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 charitably give or whatever. But it should not be required. She and this is this comes up in the in the uh, in in the econ talk with Jennifer Burns. She she discusses this where she says you know Rand acknowledges that you know if it if if it gives you pleasure to give money in that case, then you're at least getting something from the exchange. So no objection there. But if it's mandated that you do so, whether by a code of ethics or by the government, then it's wrong. Right. So. That's where she goes with this. But in any case, the other side, in addition to the children thing, is that what she's really reacting against, interestingly, is not, again, she thinks in, in this case that she's reacting against Christian charity, the notion of grace in Christianity. But what she's actually reacting against is the Kantian notion, and, she, and she's actually aware of, of, of Kant in this as well. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to imply that she's not. She knows Kant quite well. But she's reacting against the Kantian notion of the pure gift, the, the gift that is no strings attached, that, that, you know, for Kant, the only gift that is truly a gift is a gift that has no strings attached and is not, not expecting reciprocity in any way. And actually, I think Rand is correct in rejecting this notion. I actually don't think the pure gift actually is, is really something that works philosophically and it's not something that we see actually in the new testament interestingly so what she so neglects uh, un unpack that a little bit i'll get there in a moment okay what she neglects is that the notion that the reciprocal gift giving so gift giving giving a gift expecting that gift to put the other person under uh debt. In, in debt in some way or under obligation to you is what has undergirded all societies and human families from the beginning of civilization to now. That's what binds children to their parents, right? I brought you into this world. I looked after you. I, ra you know, I raised you up to this point and I can take you out of this world, <laughs> boy, right? So, but uh, that concept, and that concept, by the way, in the Greek world, this notion of reciprocal gift giving, a gift that is expect that that has strings attached, that word there's actually a word for that in Greek that is used in the New Testament. It's a word that 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 is a very common word in the Greek in the Greek language that they label or that they use as a label for this what what I call when I teach it in in, in the, at the university level what I call. Uh, the rest or the currency of reciprocity. So it's non-monetary. It's not, uh, it's not gold or silver, but it is a means, a, a medium of exchange. It's a social exchange. It's you're, you're putting a, you're putting a person under obligation by, the, by exchange of this thing for that, as opposed to money, this 
reciprocal gift giving is the word charis in Greek, which is the word that's translated in the New Testament, grace. Huh. So what happens is, let's say somebody needs to, somebody needs to move, right? You, you recently went through this. Somebody wants, somebody's going to, somebody's going to move across town. You got friends who know you're going to move across town. What are those friends going to do? They'll help you move. They'll help you load the truck. They'll help you move around, you know, all that. And usually, you know, you as a, as a token of, of, uh, of appreciation, you'll usually buy a few pizzas and share that with everybody as a, as a sign of, of that. But then in the process, they're helping you move puts you under obligation. If one of them needs something, you're going to help do help provide the same thing, the same service. One of them goes to move. They're going to do the same thing. There's actually a big bang theory episode and we'll, we can link the, uh, the, uh, the scene in the show notes. Uh, but there's a big bang theory episode where, um, the, one of the, one of the protagonists, Sheldon is upset because another character, Penny, gets him a Christmas gift and he finds out about it, that she's bought him a Christmas gift and he's just distraught because he's like, oh no, now this means I need to go get her a Christmas gift. And I don't know how big of a gift she got me. And you know, if I get one that's too small, then it doesn't like, it doesn't meet the reciprocity that's expected in these gift exchanges. And he just stresses about this, right? That's, and that's how it works. We all un- intuitively understand this, even down to, hey, man, uh, you know, or uh, you go you go to a bar and you say, uh, excuse me, um, young lady, I- I'd like to buy you a drink. Well, in exchange for that drink, you're expecting at least some conversation, at least some attention, if not more, generally more. Right. There's an exchange value to gifts. And she doesn't seem to recognize that. Actually, a lot of people who have followed the Kantian model have tried to deny it. I think it's, there's, there's a lack of reality on that. There's, a ter- there's been some terrific work in this area uh, in the last few years, uh, particularly by, uh, done by, um, by uh, John Barclay. I'll link a couple articles by John Barclay on this area that show how the, the, the notion of grace in the New Testament is not the Kantian notion of the pure gift, but is rather a notion of reciprocal gift giving that assumes uh, that God's gift actually places those who receive it under obligation to obey and actually provides them the capacity to obey and so on. So uh, for for the New Testament, it's not the thing that she's actually fighting against. What you do have, though, is... The priority of grace, the the superior party, the party who has the resources gives the gift to the, the party that doesn't have as many resources. But that puts the person who receives the gift under obligation, right? Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, there's all sorts of things there, but I, I'll, I'll link a little bit of that. Uh, but I, I think the thing that she doesn't quite understand and appreciate is if you eliminate if you get a world without charis, a world without reciprocal gift giving is a world in which her brand of Eros is going to lead to monstrous injustice. The, the foundations of, of relational reciprocity that on which friendship and all sorts of other things depend 
families, friendships, all sorts of things depend on that kind of gift giving. If you don't have that, then society is going to be a, is going to be monstrously inju- uh, uh, unjust. Hmm. And and that's another place where I think again the focus on money and the market exchange as the model all the way down without accounting for this other market, which is the market of relational exchange that's not monetary that's not that is an exchange of life but it's it's outside that part of the market if you eliminate that you're 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 detaching yourself from one of the things that makes us fundamentally human and that makes our relationships whether within the confines of romantic relationships friendship uh, uh, contexts familial contexts any of those things all of those things depend to a large extent on that on what the new testament calls calls charis what is in the greek world called charis what is you know often misunderstood but this this notion of reciprocity and again i this is something i don't think she quite grasped hmm. at least based on this book and you know it's unfortunate too that um uh that she you know, doesn't, well, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in the conclusions. So anything else uh, from, from you, any other questions or, or reflections? Um, just, just one thing uh, in the conclusion. So we can, uh, we can head there and what, uh, how do you want to wrap it up with? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, just, enormous book so yeah and it's been an enormously long discussion from us so uh yeah. it's getting pretty late here but um but yeah i mean i, I think in terms of, of getting back to the big picture and in, in terms of my conclusions on this book you know i one of the things a couple other things that i didn't get to too much at the beginning uh i found her critique of cronyism and and corruption not only in government, but also in corporations and the the interaction between government as it gains power and corporations that are able to latch on to governmental power and use lobbying power to benefit themselves. I thought that was actually a pretty, a pretty robust piece of the book, and I thought she did an excellent job with that. And I think she would be extremely upset and very... Um, opposed to the kind of crony capitalism that we see in the United States today, where you have businesses and government that are, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big bed and everybody's having a a giant governmental orgy in it. You know, it's a, it's a a giant cronyist uh, uh, environment where favors of all sorts are passed around for influence and, 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 and governmentally and, and, and wealth wise. Uh, I think that is something she regarded as the beginning of, of the end of a, of a, of a good society. And I think the U S is, uh, is, is very much there at this point. Uh, let's see the next piece. Uh, I, I think her, her, I do think that her emphasis on external reality and there being objective reality outside of our our world or our uh, our mind that our mind is is connected with that but it's but it exists outside of it i think that's fundamentally right uh, and i think she's right that it can't that it can't be changed by mere words or social convention you know she has one character at one point that says um 
uh, you know, words are relative. They're only symbols. If we don't use ugly symbols, we won't have any ugliness. <laughs> and, you know, the reality of that is just it's not true. And, you know, it's one of those things also, you know, I, I love Bernie Sanders passion and I love how much he cares, but math matters. Yeah. You know, arithmetic matters and incentives matter. And you can't ignore how people actually are going to respond to things. You can't ignore that math matters. You know, Donald Trump the, with the with the late with some of the latest uh, tax plan and, you know, some of the, the, the tariffs and all this. It's like, dude. I get what you're trying to do here, but you can't ignore the, like the reality of math. Yeah. It's good. It matters. <laughs> so human well, nature 19, and in, 19 trillion in debt. Right? Yeah. Human nature and incentives are ignored to our own peril. It's best not to pretend our way around them. And I think she's right about that. Uh, I think she doesn't get, as we talked about in terms of her discussion of justice, mercy, virtue, and all that. I don't think she fully gets the notion of reciprocity in terms of, uh, relation non-monetary relational reciprocity which i think is a very very important concept for uh the, the the good running of society i think adam smith gets that much better than rand does uh again we talked about how this book is uh is an encomium to eros but it doesn't really it, and, and at the expense of philia storge and especially agape uh she she isn't she is an opponent of agape she is an opponent of these these things where they are not uh where they, where they are potentially in conflict with eros uh and she this statement actually is, is a good one for me because it's it illustrates how she's both so right in some ways and so wrong in others she says you're the man who would know that just as an idea unexpressed in physical action is contemptible hypocrisy so is platonic love wrong Love does not have to be expressed in physical, in sex, in physical uh, sexual activity to be, uh, to be, to be hypocrisy, to be hypocrisy. All sorts of forms of love are perfectly acceptable and not, not only not hypocritical, but, but superior if they are not sexualized, right? It, it, the love of a father for his daughter is worsened immeasurably by sexual contact mm. right not all relationships are better are, are made better by sexual contact and, and as a society where we've we've gotten uh, ourselves in, in bad shape because of that but the second half of this she says and just as physical action unguided by an idea is a fool's self-fraud so is sex when cut off from one's code of values well she's absolutely right there it's a case of where, again, there's so many places in this book where I found myself going, oh, yeah, oh, no, in the same, was, in the same sentence. Is that, this, that was the same sentence? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, worth noting the Nietzschean ethics uh, of this in, in many ways, uh, where, where you have this notion of um, eliminating self-sacrifice, eliminating anything that doesn't lead to individual benefit, uh, that, you know, the, rule, the, the will of power being uh being important uh she says that you know the new goal the new ideal the new goal to aim at the purpose to live for and all men are to be re are, are to be rewarded uh, 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 hang on i screwed that up i mean this passage here is so nietzschean this is toward the end of the book she says the despoiling of reason has been the motive of every anti-reason creed on earth the despoiling of ability 
has been the purpose of every creed that preached self-sacrifice. The despoilers have always known it. We haven't. The time has come for us to see what we are now asked to worship. What had once been dressed as God or king is the naked, twisted, mindless figure of the human incompetent. This is the new ideal, the, the goal to aim at, the purpose to live for, and men are rewarded are to be rewarded according to how close they approach it. It's so Nietzschean. That this, and, and for her, that, that God, the, the, the twisted, mindless figure, the naked, twisted, mindless figure of the human incompetent, and it's pretty obvious what she is actually alluding to there, uh, specifically the notion of a crucifix, I think. Uh, but this God needs to be needs to be put to death for her. And if anything, uh, humanity needs to worship itself in its highest achievement uh, possible and, and, you know, stand in pride and to and, and be willing to will to power and all this. This is very Nietzschean in, in ethics. All right. So final word here. I'm going to I'm going to quote John Rogers just for the humor of it. I, 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 I like this quote a lot. Um, even though, again, there's a lot in this book that is, is makes it worth at least considering, even though lots of things don't quite hit where they should. There are two novels that can change a bookish 14-year-old's life, The Lord of the Rings and Atlas Shrugged. One is a childish fantasy that often engenders a lifelong obsession with its unbelievable heroes, leading to an emotionally stunted, socially crippled adulthood unable to deal with the real world. The other, of course, involves orcs. That is awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, anything so, else? Yeah, I've got one thing, but I uh, just, from what I hear from you, um, there's some good, there's some bad, and it took a long time to get through it all. Yeah, I'm not sure it's worth the read for as long as it is. <laughs> yeah. So is it, uh, at the beginning, we talked about, um, we talked about being one of the most influential books, or, or people saying that it's the second most influential book after the Bible, and then others saying it is, uh, you know, being very upset when they find out if you if you've read the book where uh where would you find where would you fall on that uh that continuum um i would be a bit concerned if this was something that i i found or that someone felt was the the motivating factor in how they understood ethics uh and and how the how the world works in that regard um I do think that it's it's the kind of book that in it, in its investigation of how how unintended consequences can work and how uh, certain philosophical positions that deny uh, or that, that that try to fancifully uh, deal you know work their way around uh, human um, uh, human nature and incentives and things like math. Uh, that those things are are foolish. I think that can be pretty useful. Um, so I kind of fall in the middle there. I'm, I, I, I'm. It's neither one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, if you were influenced by this book at all, then you know you're pretty much the antichrist, or you know, whatever, whatever analogous figure uh, suits you. Um, 
Uh, it's not that, but at the same point, I, I wouldn't want this to be like, I wouldn't give this to, you know, my child saying, you know, here's what I, here's what you need to know in terms of how the world works so that you can have a good ethical framework for the world. I think there's, I think a lot of what she has to say recognizes a lot of problems, but her solutions are somewhat half baked. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and even worse than being half baked. I mean, she, she rightly observes that the problem of collectivism or, or of, you know, the Marxist type solution to things is that people are selfish and that selfishness leads to all sorts of abuses and, and that you wind up with corruption that, that causes all sorts of problems. And then her solution is so everybody should embrace their selfishness, that selfishness and greed, that those things are good. But see, so to me, using this as any sort of ethical framework in that regard is a negative. Now, in terms of understanding that selfishness is a fundamental problem and and, and looking at the at, at that side of it, I think it, it can be pretty good. But um, yeah, it just it really depends on how somebody's somebody's going to use it. You know, beyond that, I, I think it's just it's just a book and uh, it's it's one that for some people will be worth reading. For me, again, it's it's on the longer end of uh, of books that uh it, because it's so so long it's not, it's it's pushing the point where it's not worth it because of how long it is to get the lessons that you can out of it i think you might do better reading some adam smith uh, i think uh some of the behavioral economists that we've read so far have done you know you'd do better reading some talib uh but it's it's one that's probably worth reading for a lot of people yeah uh the the, the one thing i wanted to mention is uh in in a to conclude is it, it, you, you brought this up at the beginning, but just how uh, black and white a lot of it is in, in especially with the characters, you, you, you <laughs> call them flat characters. Um, and, straw men and, in many cases. Yeah. Straw men. And, and, and it makes sense if this was written from more of a, as, as we alluded to at the beginning, more of a propaganda point of view of this is what I'm trying to get across. But, as you pointed out, that's not how things work. And, and I, I think it's really damaging. And it's, it's, it also puts things in, in a problem that, that I think is, is what we're really seeing a lot of, of today where, where you point to us versus them. So in, in her book, the, the people that uh, are espousing her theories are, are the us in the book, and they're doing everything right. I mean, they're, they're making, they they may make some mistakes, but overall they're 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 doing everything right. And the them they're doing everything wrong. They're taking they're they're doing this, and that's really not as as you pointed out how things work. But but e even worse, it uh, it, it, it drives that. Yeah, it polarizes. And then as we've seen in a lot of the other books that we've we've read for this project and we've talked about recently it it doesn't it doesn't cause you to look inward if 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 all the problems are from the moochers and the looters you you're you're not looking in as to what problem you're creating either and so and, and i i think that's a a big problem with the book and and maybe i you know we discuss why she did it but it it's still that's well, it's fascinating in that respect because she, above all, ha hates the idea of you know people playing the victim to benefit. Mm 
mm-hmm. but there is sort of ironically a way in which this book encourages the reader to feel like a victim of the system that is keeping the reader who is special and you know is is obviously one of us from having what that person deserves so mm-hmm. it it actually paradoxically the reader is encouraged to play the victim in a lot of ways so and and that that reinforces exactly what you're talking about so it, it's and I, I again i find that in many places where she's really pushing hard against one thing she falls kind of into the same into the flip side of the same thing mm-hmm. you know the, the polls it's you know that that old concept of uh, of of politically and philosophically the poles of various perspectives actually bend toward one another and you know i think that that's what happens here in a lot of cases hmm. Well, I think that uh, <laughs> that about does it for it for this book. But yeah, yeah. great great points. I really enjoyed the uh, the conversation and um, or the monologues, as it were, in this one. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> thanks for if you're you're still listening. Thanks for for listening to this point. You can <laughs> you can find us on booksoftitans.com and then also on on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. We'll uh, we'll be discuss- discussing some uh, some other books coming up. One is going to be the Russ Roberts book, "How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life." That should be uh, a really fun discussion. Yep, uh, I've I've got poor poor Charlie's Almanac that uh, we'll be discussing soon, and uh, and then we get into to some of the other good ones. I've got uh, Homo Deus coming up, and yeah. Looking forward to it. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be back soon, like you said, to discuss all of those. Until then, keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving. And keep it real. I made this.